You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. We are continuing on in our sermon series, Loved Beyond Belief, our Advent series that we started several weeks ago. Uh, We began by talking about the shocking nature of God's love as it's revealed to us even in the very beginning of the Advent story. So Matthew begins his record of the birth of Christ, not primarily with Mary and Joseph, but with the lineage of Christ. The men and women that make up the heritage of Jesus, his, his ancestors, his family, and as we see in the midst of that, Matthew tells us the story that the love of God uh, that is on display for us through Christ Jesus is a love that comes out of brokenness. The the lineage of Christ, which should have been kind of a, a moral resume, if you will, justifying why Jesus really was the king, is not a resume filled primarily with stories of heroism and nobility and honor. It's, it's a story filled with brokenness, even shame and guilt, and yet the Lord even then shows to us that His love is not just love that can't be stopped by brokenness, but that in His grace and mercy, the love of God comes out of our brokenness, that He takes what we have shattered and He makes something beautiful far beyond what we could fathom. The second week, we talked about love that perseveres, that the, 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 the plan of redemption that began not, not in the New Testament, not at the coming of Christ, not with the promises to the kings of old or the, even to the, the patriarch Abraham, but the plan of redemption that Ephesians 1 tells us began before the foundation of the world, that that plan of redemption could not be stopped even by our own sin our own rebellion, even our own rejection of God because His is a love that perseveres, that is true to His promises, that does not end and will not stop. And then last week we looked at a love that descends, one of my favorite qualities of the love of God. A love that though He is on high, holy of holies, the majestic one, worthy of all honor and praise, that He doesn't invite us up to him, but he descends to us. That he lowers himself, making himself in Christ killable, punchable, beatable. He comes down and he serves us, though he is the king. The aim of this sermon series, especially around this Advent time, is, is to do two things, to marvel at the love of God. I, I hope you've seen there's, there's really been no application in this sermon series. There's been very little, so therefore go and do. It's a sermon series that, that is instead an invitation to behold, to marvel. But as we marvel, we also want to understand what it is about the love of God that makes it so beautiful. I remember shortly after I met Rachel, so if you don't know Rachel and I's story, uh, we met my senior year, after my senior year in college, 2007. I think that's right. We met in June, 
We got engaged in September. We got married in December. Not a lot of waiting. Um, but we met in June, and we spent almost every day with each other for about a month and a half because I was preparing to move from here down to Texas for grad school in the beginning of August. And so uh, someday in, in, in August, early in August, with about a week left, Rachel and I were out. We were doing some shopping. I think we were buying like furniture and stuff like that for the apartment that I was going to be moving into. And she was really upset. And I already knew that this was the girl. And so I was like, hey, you know what? Let me cheer you up. She said, well, okay. I said, why don't we go ring shopping? First of all, utterly unprepared for anything that that entailed or anything else. But I thought it was a good move. Uh, and, uh, and since she said yes, eventually, it ended up being a good move. But we went, we went to this, uh, we went to Jared. Okay, I think that probably has to be bleeped out because we're not sponsored by Jared here at Mercy's Door. Um, we went to Jared and we began looking at these rings. And as we looked at these rings, the, I started, the, the attendant started asking me what felt like an interrogation level of questions, right? First, we weren't engaged yet. Second, I hadn't even planned a proposal or anything else. And so we're looking at rings, and this, this, this very nice older man started asking me questions about the type of ring that we wanted and the type of diamond that we wanted. And then he started asking about budget, which I really didn't want to answer that question, especially with Rachel standing right there. Um, but what I learned was apparently there is more to buying a diamond than just big and small, which is how I entered into the equation, right? So if you don't know this, there are the four C's of diamonds. So I want men to answer this, not women, okay? Do, do the men here know the four C's of diamonds? Not cost. Cost is not one. That is not one. So I, I heard clarity and cut, color, and carrot. Good. Excellent. Yeah. And apparently carrot is more than a vegetable. I learned that day. There is also apparently beyond that even more variables that they use to determine how much they can make you mortgage your financial future in order to purchase a diamond ring. There are things like fluorescence, how it shines under light in the polish and symmetry of the diamond, right? All of these aspects of a diamond. And if you hold up a diamond, you can slowly turn it in the light and spend hours looking at every individual facet of that diamond. The love of God is far greater, far better, far more beautiful and astonishing than any diamond that he created. And so just like that diamond, we want to know every facet of the love of God. To be able to behold it and slowly turn it and see every aspect of it and again say, my goodness, how beautiful. And this sermon series is, is just a small attempt at that. That each week we would turn the, 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 the jewel of God's love just a little bit more and see its beauty. And today we're turning that jewel again, looking at this love beyond belief, and this time looking at how this is a love that invites. A love that invites. The, the story, the passage we're in today in Luke 2, 8 to 21, 
comes directly after the birth of the King, King Jesus. What ought to come next is the birth announcement of this coming King. It should have been a great, unprecedented public pronouncement, right? One that was a celebration where, where the, the, the general public and the masses and the crowds could, could revel at this great new news that a king like no other king, the king to end all kings, the king of the world, had been born. But the news of Christ's coming wasn't made in a spectacular, well, it was made in a spectacular fashion, but not in a spectacular fashion to the public or to the masses. It wasn't made to the crowds. It wasn't made to the royals or elites. But instead, it comes to a select few outside, in the middle of the night, off in the distant hills beyond Bethlehem. And it comes like this because the news of Jesus' birth given to these shepherds is not primarily an announcement. It's primarily an invitation. Not an announcement to know about the birth of the King. But an invitation from the Lord to enter into the birth of the King. You know, invitations are incredibly important. I don't remember if, if you had any experiences in your life where you were invited to something that kind of maybe changed the trajectory of your life, whether you were invited to, to attend a school or college, or you were invited to a party that you met your spouse at, or, or whatever it might be, or, or maybe you remember a time where you weren't invited. Right? Everybody remembers, you know, birthday parties in elementary school start handing out invitations and you're just sitting there waiting to see if you're going to receive yours and then it doesn't come and it, it crushes you and you, you guys don't remember that was that was that just my experience okay that's fantastic I'm going to cry on the day after Christmas uh, yeah invitations they communicate they communicate that your presence your participation that you are desired that you're wanted, maybe even needed. I, I remember when, uh, when I was a senior in high school, um, I was, uh, it was kind of the week where I needed to decide where I was going to go to college. And it was down to, to, two, to two colleges, and by God's grace, I had done uh, fairly well in academics in school, and so I had been offered scholarships uh, by, by two colleges. One here locally, McKendree and another one in, uh, in Missouri. And my, my mom, uh, again, we're an Air Force family. Uh, both my mom and dad come from big families. We were the only one of about 17 aunts and uncles that I have that moved away from family. And so we spent our life crisscrossing the globe because Uncle Sam told us to. And so we never really lived close to my mom and dad's immediate family, my extended family. And so when it came time to whether or not I would stay close or go far, you can imagine uh, that my parents, and especially my mother, uh, she was invested in me choosing the one that was close. And uh, I, I remember kind of going back and forth, and honestly, McKendry was a better university, and by the way, the place that I eventually graduated from. But the way that the story goes, I, I, I only 
I not only wanted to pursue an education, I wanted to be a college football player, okay? And um, if, I mean, you guys live here in the town where I played high school football. And so it's surprising to me if you have not heard of my high school football uh, exploits. Um, I think we won three games the entirety of my four years in high school, okay? Um, so anyways, um, I had talked to both of the football coaches at these universities, and both of them had graciously informed me that they would allow me, since they didn't have to pay any money, to, you know, be on the team. And so on the day that I was going to make my choice, I got a phone call. I got a phone call, and it was the head football coach from uh, the University of Missouri. Not of Missouri, in Missouri, I was looking at. Let me clarify. That, that university had like 700 people. And he said, hey, I just, uh, I just uh, wanted to check in with you and, and see if you decided uh, where you were going to be, you know, coming to college and just reemphasize, we'd, we'd really love to have you here. And it was like a 15-second phone call. And when he hung up, I went and told my mother and father, I know where I'm going to college. And, and she said, where? And I said, she said, McKendry? And I said, no, the other one. And, uh, and she said, what was it? Like, is it the, the academic programs? Was it, you know, she started listing off all of these really important variables, kids, that you should be considering with your university. And honestly, my response was, no. It was because the coach called me and said he wanted me. Like, how silly is that? But a 15-second phone call could shift a significant portion of where my future was headed all because of a very small invitation where someone else told me, you're wanted. Invitations are powerful. And if you need a kind of a, a, a less big example, I have a nine-year-old daughter, one of only, she's the only girl in our household of five kids. And uh, several weeks ago, we started getting phone calls from a bunch of random people that we didn't know. And they were leaving messages, and they would say something like this to my wife's phone. I'm hopeful that I'm reaching Hattie Collins's mother. I'm like, well, this is weird. Um, she passed out an invitation to our child to have a play date. And our child's really excited about it, and we're calling to get more information. And so we, we went to Hattie, and we're like, hey. Why are you giving out our phone number? No, we just said that. We just said, hey, what's, what's with the invitations? And she just said, she said, I wanted to have a play date. I asked you if maybe we could have a play date with some, some of my friends. You said yes. And so I just figured I wanted to make sure that they got invited. I said, that's, that's phenomenal. It's fantastic. You know, and I'm thinking, I wish someone would have invited me. <laughs> right? Invitations are powerful. Our hearts long to be invited we long to be desired, and in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8, we see one of the most amazing, spectacular, shocking, beautiful, loving invitations. The God, creator of the universe, invites lowly shepherds into his presence, into his love and mercy. So what does this invitational love of our God look like? Well, Luke tells us, the Lord himself through Luke tells us, his invitational love initiates, his invitational love gives us direction, and his invitational love delivers us joy. 
It initiates, it gives us direction, and it delivers us joy. First, the invitational love of God initiates. Luke begins his uh, recounting, and it says, In the same region, so somewhere around Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, as we've been reading uh, last week, Luke, 1 through, uh, Luke 2, 1 through 7, and now as we enter in to the second passage in Luke chapter 2, it, it's right for us to ask the question, why is Luke writing this story in such a way that he is? If you read through it, you'll notice Luke uses a ton of passive language. And I know this because every paper I have ever been, I have ever had graded or edited, they have told me, Michael, stop using passive language. Okay? Now, I'm not an English teacher, so I'm not going to try and actually describe to you what passive language is. Right, there are people far smarter than me that can do that. But, but if you look at even verses 1 through 7 and into 8 and 9, what you'll find out is you don't really see who or what is driving the story forward. The, the main characters in the story seem to be at the whim of something or someone else. Right, we talked about last week how Mary and Joseph are kind of driven along, not by their own volition and choices, Right? They don't choose to move and to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, from Galilee to Judea. They don't choose to end up not in a family home or family house or in the upper room gathered with family. They don't choose to be kind of lodged with animals around them. He even says, uh, kind of Luke, tongue-in-cheek, I think, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Again, noting it's not Mary's choice in this moment to give birth in this circumstance or setting. Right? There's passive language all throughout the, the passage. And as we move into verses 8, it, it continues. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. It, the story transitions and we're introduced to new characters, but again... They seem to be simply kind of minding their own business, somehow kind of floating along in the midst of this miraculous story. They're passive as well. Their actions don't seem to drive the story forward. But that passive language ends at verse 9, when we're told, an angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shines around them, and the shepherds are filled with great fear. The angel of the Lord comes to address the shepherds. The, the Greek literally says that they come and stand over them. And in a moment, we have an actor, someone whose actions drives the story forward. In a moment, we see who is actually writing this story. And it's not Mary, it's not Joseph, it's not the shepherds, nor is it Caesar Augustus, or as we'll find out in the next couple of passages, the wise men or King Herod. It's the Lord that's driving the story forward. It's the Lord that is determining what is happening and when and to whom. 
Now, if you've been at Mercy's Door before, you, you know that we've, talkin', we've talked much about the initiating love of God. That from Genesis through Revelation, there is one primary actor, and it's the Lord. It's His plan of redemption. He drives the plan of redemption forward. When there are those big moments where we kind of say, uh-oh, what's going to happen from here? It's always the Lord that answers and solves the problem. You never read a great story of men and women searching after God. You read great stories of the God of the universe searching after humanity. Moses happens upon the burning bush. Abraham is minding his own business in the land of his forefathers when the Lord comes to him. Noah is a faithful man that knows nothing of a flood nor apparently shipbuilding at all when the Lord comes and commands him to build the ark. David is but a shepherd when, he, when the Lord sends Samuel to go and to anoint him as the king. The Lord is always the one moving the story forward. He is the one who graciously chose to create humanity in His image. He is the one that dwelt with man and woman in the garden. He is the one that promised to redeem humanity when we rebelled against Him and shattered His creation by sin and death. He is the one that made for Himself a chosen people. He is the one that rescued that chosen people out of slavery. He is the one that purposed to dwell once again in their midst. He is the one that gave them the law to make them a people suitable for His presence. He is the one that decided that He would come as the Savior of the world and not another. And that He, through His incarnation, would heal what we had broken. He is the one here that comes to the shepherds. He is the one that invites them into His presence. His initiation goes beyond simply speaking the first word. Look at the rest of verses 8 and 9 and on into verse 10, and you'll see it's always the Lord acting. Always. At the end of verse 9, we're told that the shepherds were filled with great fear. Literally in the, the Greek, they feared a great fear. It was too much. You couldn't capture it in one word. To use it twice. They were terrified because the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they should have been terrified. Right? Notice what then the angels respond to them. The angels say to them, fear not. They don't say to them, your fear is baseless. You ought not fear. But instead they say, no longer fear. This fear not is the same thing that the angel said to Mary and Joseph when they appeared to him. There is something about the glory of the Lord and sinful humanity that our rightful first reaction is fear. The story of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 when he has a vision of the glory of the Lord 
one of the greatest prophets of the people of God, perhaps the most righteous man in all of Israel, comes face to face with the glory of the Lord and his response is, woe is me, I am undone. I am a sinful man with unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. Even the seraphim, the angelic beings that are are, are flying in the presence of the Lord, they are covering their feet and they are covering their eyes because God is so holy and perfect. But what do the angels say? They say, do not fear. Because the Lord has made it okay. He has made our need to fear in His glorious presence go away. He has done it. And the angels say, behold. Literally, that word is is both a command and an invitation. It means you must perceive, you must experience, you must Come to personally, intimately understand what I'm about to tell you. The angels don't just tell the shepherds good news. They don't just inform them. They invite them, come taste and see, as the psalmist says. Come and experience news that will transform your lives. And then, of course, the most direct statement, they say, I bring to you. Angels are messengers literally what their, their name means. They're messengers of the Lord. They speak for the Lord. And literally, they are messengers coming to tell the shepherds that the Lord brings good news, gospel news, with great joy for all people. The Lord is initiating the invitation. Now, here's why this is important, not just because, oh, well, that's great, the Lord's the actor. Understanding the initiating love of God changes the life of every believer. It changes how we come to the Lord, and it changes how we seek to continue to live in His presence. Uh, My my favorite book, probably number one on on my top ten list, is a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Uh, The Great Divorce is is kind of an analogy of life eternal. And, and in this retelling of, of life eternal, uh, these, these ghosts, these men and women that have, have died, they travel up to the very outer edges of heaven. And from there, we watch play out kind of this anecdotal story of those that choose to go and live in the presence of the Lord for all eternity and those who reject his presence one final time. And he, he tells this story of, of this one ghost, and it's, it's a woman who's kind of uh, midlife, and, and, and he tells a story that he sees this, this ghostly woman far off, and she seems to be contorting herself in really odd ways. And he doesn't quite understand what's going on with this kind of you know, woman, this see-through ghostly shape of a woman, until he, he fixes his eyes a little more, and he, he, he realizes that this woman is trying to contort her body in such a way that she might look pleasing to the angels coming up to her. She's trying to attract the attention of the angelic beings who are simply there to usher these ghosts into the presence of God, into the fullness of their humanity. And he says it's it's both shocking and and almost 
off-putting. And, and you get this sense at first, you go, oh, that's, that's just odd and weird. But I think if you look at our own life when it comes to our interactions with the Lord, I think we spend a lot of time contorting our moral resumes, contorting our works, contorting our ability, our gifts, our talents, our lovableness before the Lord in order to try and attract Him. As if in some way, shape, or form, we'd finally become lovable and He'd finally notice us. But we have no need to make ourselves attractive to the Lord because He sets His affection upon us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Lord shows His love for us. The initiating love of God helps us to drop the pretense. We already have an invitation in Christ. He's already given us His love and affection. We've done nothing to earn it. And let me tell you this. It doesn't make it any sweeter if you think you can finally earn the love and affection of the Lord. The shepherds were not preparing for the coming king. They weren't out on the hillside looking and seeking after the Lord, and yet the Lord comes to them. And they still find the Lord. Some of us don't have a waterfall of thanks towards the Lord because you and I are convinced that we actually play a really important role in this story of redemption. Or we play a really important role in the story of our own salvation or sanctification. But you don't. He initiates it. He empowers it and sees it through. And others of us sit apathetic because we have no clue how far the Lord has gone to tell us, fear not, behold what I am doing, I bring you good news of great joy. And the initiating love of God doesn't just change how we first approach the Lord, but it also changes how we live out this life. You know, I get asked a question as a pastor all the time, and it's the same question I tend to ask myself. It, it sounds something like this, what should I be doing or what does the Lord want me to do? Right, have you guys asked that question before? But if the Lord God is the initiator, if He is the one that writes the story and drives the story forward, then we shouldn't be asking the question, what do I need to do? But instead we should be asking the question, what is God doing? Where is He working already? What is He already doing in my life, in the life of my spouse, my family, my friends, my church, my neighborhood. Because he's the one that writes the story. He's the one that saves. He's the one that heals. And he invites us into his work. The invitational love of the Lord begins with his invitation, and it also gives us direction. This initial announcement of the angels is quickly followed up with a few statements that are packed full with information for the shepherds. They say this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel tells them, today, not tomorrow, not yesterday, today, a child is born. That child is born in the city of David. That is Bethlehem. That child is Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Lord that you have waited for. And he goes on and tells them, you will find him in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Meaning, you will not find him in a large home. You will not find him in an upper family room. Most Jewish ancient homes in that time were built in a way where there were several small rooms on the the, the floor, on the, the first level, and on the second level was a family room where the eating, sleeping, congregating, living took place. They wouldn't find Jesus up there. They'd find him down where the animals were kept, where the supplies were stored, where a manger would be. The angel's news is very specific. And it's really good news that their news is specific because it's the type of invitation that the shepherds, and quite honestly, you and I need. Right? Invitations are not meant to just announce something that's going to occur. They're meant to get people to that event and celebration. Hattie gave invitations out to all her friends that she wanted to invite. We got phone calls. You know why? Because the invitations contained no date and no location. And so we got a bunch of phone calls that said, my kid is really excited to hang out with Hattie. One, who is Hattie? (laughs) Two, where do you live? Three, is there a specific time you'd like my child to come hang out with you? Those are important pieces of of information. Generic or unspecific invitations aren't helpful. Right? If the shepherds would have just simply said, today, even in Israel, the King of Kings has been born, one of two things would have happened. Either one, the shepherds would have said, great, but we'll never find him. So we won't go look. Or two, they would have been wandering around crawling in the dark, hoping to find this Messiah that they have no clue where he really is. But the shepherds told him who he was. And they told him where he was. And they told him how to find him. So what does this have to do with you and I today? Well, there's one of the things that in our society, Jesus gets a really bad rap for. And it's the exclusive, oftentimes restrictive love of God. You know, the kind of love of God that gives us only one way to enter into his presence. And then demands that we live a certain way in light of it. That type of restrictive love is seen as harsh or negative, even oppressive oftentimes. Oftentimes not love at all, but unloving. While I was uh, Christmas shopping, uh, we were in Target, and uh, I, I, I walked by the book section, and there was a book there uh, by Kathy Lee Gifford called, uh, what was it called? The Jesus I Know. Okay, The Jesus I Know. Now, let me caveat this. Not read the book. No clue. 
could be a great book, so I'm not going to be harsh towards her. But the, the thought of the book, The Jesus I Know, which I believe, just from reading The Dust Jacket, is kind of a compilation of people just telling their own personal experiences with Jesus, relationship with Jesus, how they see Jesus, etc. The concept of the book breaks my heart. And I'll tell you why. Because part of what that book communicates is that you and I are left to our own devices to figure out who Jesus is, how we get into relationship with him, and if we'll ever know the real Jesus. It's not love. And that's not the invitation of our Lord. I hear this, our God came from heaven to earth. He has redeemed us from our sin by the price of the blood of His beloved Son, and He intends for us to find Him. And so He has told us exactly how to get to Him, exactly how to have life with Him, life of abundance and fullness, a flourishing life. It would be unloving for Him to invite us into His presence and not tell us how to get there. A real invitation is specific because the point of that invitation is to ensure that we wind up where we're supposed to go. And so to us, our Heavenly Father says that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That knowing Christ is the one and only way to know the Father and that Christ alone is our assurance and hope in life and death. Christ invites us into his presence and because of that into the presence of our Father. The invitational love of our God ensures that we have the directions. It ensures that we make it into his presence. The invitational love of God initiate. It gives to us directions, and finally, it delivers us joy. A few weeks ago, I received an invitation. Now, this invitation was not at all initiated by me. I did not seek it out. I had no clue it was coming. And this invitation was very specific. It was clear exactly what I needed to do. It did not want me to miss out on the opportunity that it had for me. And I was left with no unanswered questions. The problem? This invitation was for jury duty. It was not initiated by me. And it was very specific. But it was not going to bring me joy. A good invitation is one that leaves us desiring what it offers. While being wanted and desired is a lovely thing, the invitation of God's love is ultimately good because of what he is inviting us into. And what he is inviting us into is his presence. And in his presence, we are told, is the fullness of joy. What we're invited into is what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 25. Faithful disciples of his will one day hear well done, my good and faithful servant. Now enter into the joy of your master. The angels to the shepherds don't just invite them to go and see. 
they invite them to go and experience the joy that has finally come for them. Look at what happens as soon as they give the information to the shepherds. It says in verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The angels proclaim the good news to the shepherds and then the angels begin to worship. They worship the Lord. If you, here's a little tip. If you ever want to figure out what our worship is meant to look at, go through Scripture and find angels that are worshiping. They see the Lord clearly when we see in a mirror lit dimly. They see the Lord without the cloud and fog of sin and death and brokenness the way that we do. And so the angel, it's as if you can imagine, he barely gets the, the words out of his lips. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. A Savior, the Messiah, the incarnate God has come. And as soon as the words leave his lips, he can do nothing else but help to worship. And not just him, but all of the heavenly hosts show up all at once. As if saying, shepherds, you don't get it. This is the most unfathomable, unimaginable, wonderful, beautiful, life history, world changing event that has ever occurred. Oh, see the great joy that has come. Glory to God in the highest and peace, real, everlasting, shalom, wholeness, peace among those with whom our God is pleased. The angels find joy in this invitation. The shepherds find joy in this invitation. Verse 15, the angels went away from them into heaven and the shepherds said to one another, cool, calm, collected, I'm sure, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. I think 16 give us, gives us a, a, maybe a, a better example of what actually was occurred. They went away with haste and found Mary and Joseph. That, that word haste in the, in the Greek literally means they hurried out of a great overwhelming desire. Right? Like, you guys have been in places, maybe, maybe you've eaten some food that didn't agree with you before, and you went away with haste out of an overwhelming desire, okay? In a more beautiful, poetic sense, the shepherds went away with haste. They, they hurried off because they were overwhelmed with the desire to get to this child, the king of kings to find Mary and Joseph and the Savior that had come. The shepherds have joy. Everyone, we're told, that hears from the shepherds has joy. Mary, not, verse 19, but Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She holds them close. She, she hangs on to them. She says, I don't ever want to forget this. Don't forget that, that Mary had walked through a, a, an incredibly difficult experience. She was engaged but not married and found out from an angel that she was about to be pregnant, not from the man that she was betrothed to. She had to journey while nine months pregnant, 90 miles through treacherous terrain. 
She shows up to a, a place that she doesn't know. She can find no place to be housed or lodged that's suitable. Then she goes into labor, delivers a child amongst the animals, and finally lays, them, lays him in a manger. But then shepherds show up and say, we know who this child is. This is the Messiah, the one we have waited for, our Savior, the Lord Himself. You can almost sense Mary's exhale of, this is so worth it. In just a few short verses in this small story, the invitation of God, you can start to see it trickling downhill. You can start to see it reverberating with other people. You know, over the, the last two years, we've had a host of new words come into our vocabulary. Words like contract tracing, contact tracing, words like exposure, quarantine. Right? Our, our, our vocabulary when it comes to illness and sickness has forever changed. But I remember several years ago hearing a quote that I loved that resonated with me that called life in Christ the good sickness. And the theme was simply this, the gospel is far more contagious than COVID-19 ever will be. And it spreads, the joy of Christ spreads as Christ incarnate comes in contact with humanity, his joy and his life spreads from one to another like little pockets of light that show up and increase and the light eventually overcomes the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. Christmas is an invitation. It is, at its core, an invitation to come, behold, enter into the presence of God, to be reconciled with Him, to meet Him, to meet His healing and saving power and grace. You know, Jesus is recorded as crying twice in His life. Once, he cries at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And even those tears are, are really more out of empathy to his friends that are standing beside. But the other time that Jesus cries is captured in Luke chapter 19. It says this, And when he, Jesus, drew near to Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Oh, would that you... Even you had known on this day all the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What makes Jesus weep? It's when his invitational love is not received by his children. The sorrow is not for him. The sorrow is for us. He has offered us eternal life, life with him and the Father. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all who are labor, all who are heavy laden. I will give you rest, rest for your soul. The Lord in Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. 
by wine and milk without money or price? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Oh, listen to me, he invites us. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me here that your soul may live. And Jesus again in John 15 invites us, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. But apart from me you can do nothing. And finally he says in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, so abide in my love. Christmas is an invitation because Christ in his life is an invitational life, an invitational love. So if you've ever, never known the intimate love of God, come. Come even now to him. Come in faith. Come to him in prayer. Lay down your sins and burdens before him. And receive instead His grace and mercy. Exchange your life for His. Take up His righteousness and His position as a beloved Son of God. And if you've heard this invitation a thousand times, come again. Enter in again. Hear the invitation again right now for rest and life and satisfaction, and joy. The Lord our God invites us into love beyond belief. And so He beckons to us, come. Pray with me, church.